Our first reading today comes from the book of Micah, um, and if you're following along in your pew Bibles, it starts on page 759. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. (laughs) There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come, the day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust the neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come, the day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us and will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. And the second reading... And the New Testament is from Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 1. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, we're on page 824. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. They sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. 
he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is their heir, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, good afternoon. Hi. Yeah. Um, no, it is, it is a real joy. I didn't say before, I should have said, uh, one of the things you can do uh, to support us is just reconnect with us. I hope that you'll come and talk to us afterwards, or uh, we'll be around this week a little bit at some of the community groups. If that's not your group, then have a revolt and ask why it isn't. And, um, you know, uh, no, it'd be great to see you. I have really fond memories uh, of many of you from, from a few years ago when I visited. Perhaps you'll recall I came and um, was with you at Rivendell. And, um, and I just have lovely memories of that time with you. Uh, that was 2018, for those that missed it. Uh, and actually, uh, preaching now from Micah kind of ties in with, with Rivendell a few years ago, and you'll see, you'll see why later. Uh, that's not really why I picked, uh, I picked this passage. I am an Old Testament lecturer, uh, and so I was bound to pick something from the Old Testament. And I mean, one of the side benefits of picking something like this is you kind of get a feel for for my work and the kind of part of the Bible that I'm in all the time. Uh, this, is the, this is the century that I live in, the 8th century BC, uh, is the century I spend all my time in. Uh, but that's not why I picked it. I hope it'll become obvious why I picked it as we go through it. Um, but why don't, we, why don't we pray? Gracious Father, uh, you give us all scripture for our good. You give it to us so that we might come to see you more clearly and so that we might see the world differently. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, uh, you would do that in us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Micah is actually a super fascinating prophet. He lives at the same time as Isaiah, about 700 years before Jesus. Uh, and during his lifetime, he witnesses some of the most extraordinary events. Uh, and this chapter comes, I think, right at the end of his lifetime, as he looks back on what's been a very troubled life, really, uh, and reflects on it. Uh, as he does that, as he looks back on his life, Micah is wrestling with what he sees going on in the world around him and trying to make sense of it. If you've ever struggled as you've tried to read the Old Testament prophets, maybe you've dipped into Jeremiah at some stage and you just thought, wow, this is really cryptic uh, and difficult. If you've ever struggled with the prophets, then really this is the key to it, okay? What they're doing is they're looking back on the promises and the events that God had done with his people, the promises that he'd made to his people long ago. So perhaps you can think of them. Uh, God once made a promise to Abraham for a great nation. And he made a promise to Moses for a, a land of peace flowing with milk and honey, if you recall. Uh, he made a promise once to David for an eternal kingdom. And so they're thinking about those promises that God has made. 
And they're thinking about the events of Israel's history, things like the Exodus, the time when God rescued his people out of slavery from Egypt and brought them out. Do you remember the story? Parted the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army came in behind them, they all drowned. He rescued his people out of slavery. And they're thinking about those things, but they're not living during that era. They're living quite a long time afterwards. And then they're looking at their own world. And they're thinking, well, this isn't really the way it's supposed to be. And they wrestle with what they see in their world. Micah wrestles with a world that just doesn't make sense to him. And he finds himself anxious and troubled and uncertain and doubtful. And what does it mean to trust God, to have faith in God in a time like his? And so I suspect that we can actually relate to that in our moment of history as well. If you've been living on the planet Earth for the last couple of years, uh, then maybe you've had some of the same thoughts that Micah has had as you've kind of looked around at your world and reflected on what your world is like. And if you've kind of found yourself thinking at any point, wow, this just isn't how the world is supposed to be, then this is a passage that should bring you some comfort. I've found myself thinking that, to be honest with you. I said before, the last couple of years have been rough, to be honest with you, uh, in South Africa. We haven't had really a very easy time. Uh, so although this passage starts off a little bit morose, what misery is mine, writes Micah. Uh, maybe that's kind of the same thought I've had too. And there's a turning point, as we'll see, and some hope. Uh, all right, so just to get some context, let me try to put you back in Micah's world. Basically, there are two problems going on for Micah at his time. The whole century that he lives in, more or less, is just a catastrophe from start to finish. Uh, but there are two big problems. The first one, and the main one that the book of Micah kind of wrestles with, is just the blatant evil of his own political leaders. Uh, at one point, he even compares them to cannibals, who kind of stripped the flesh off God's people. We've just had an election. I didn't hear anybody comparing anybody to cannibals. Uh, but you have to be fairly jaded at your own leadership before you start using that metaphor, right? Uh, but this really was the, the story of the first part of Micah's life. He lived in many respects in quite a quiet, prosperous time for the nation but it was only prosperous for a kind of a select few people, and everybody else just kind of suffered the injustice of it all. And so that's what he's writing about in the first part of this chapter. Verse 2, the faithful have been swept from the land, not one upright person remains, everyone lies in wait to shed blood, they hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled at doing evil, the ruler demands gifts, the judge accepts bribes, the powerful dictate what they desire, they all conspire together. And the best of them is like a briar and the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. Uh, that briar and the thorn hedge go with Micah earlier when he said, I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of vineyard, but there's no grapes to eat. None of the early figs I crave. Uh, the Bible actually often compares Israel to a vineyard. I don't know. Have you noticed that? Uh, we saw another part of the Bible in the New Testament reading just before that was comparing Israel to a vineyard too. But it happens quite a lot. Jesus does it, Isaiah does it, Micah does it, Moses does it. Uh, but every time it happens, it never comes out well for Israel. As soon as somebody mentions vineyard, you know there's going to be some kind, of <laughs> some kind of indictment going on. But 
that's actually what our world is like, isn't it? Uh, in the experience of so many people, you know, the countries of the world, even the so-called poorest countries of the world, they actually have the things they need. They have the resources, they have natural resources, they have people, uh, they have potential, they have everything that they need, but somehow, somehow it just kind of all gets squandered away and there's nothing left. And then because nobody's getting anything, everybody realizes they have to look out for themselves and so there's more crime and there's more injustice as people who can afford it kind of pay for their own justice under the table and then there's more disgruntled people and there's more corruption and people can't trust the system and so this cycle starts and, you know, greed and war and in the end of it all, there's just suffering. There's just suffering and it's the poor people who actually suffer the most. And this was the world that Micah found himself in and it's very similar to our world. So many places in our world are like these rich vineyards and you'd think that you would find grapes to eat and figs. I'm not sure why the figs go in the vineyard in the metaphor, but you'd think that you'd find grapes there, but you don't. You just find thorns and thistles and it's like this huge disappointment. And this is especially true of Israel because they weren't supposed to be like that. Perhaps you recall, God didn't bring his people out of Egypt just so that they could be like everybody else. He brought them out so that they would be a holy people and so that they would be a light to the nations and so that other people would come with them to God and find God through them. But no, in the end, they're just like everybody. So the second problem in Micah's lifetime is that eventually God's patience with all of this is exhausted. And God won't just tolerate wickedness and injustice forever. Eventually, he steps in. And because of that, verse 4, the day God visits you has come. Now, this visiting isn't like having a, having a cup of tea on the porch. Uh, this is the kind of visiting you don't want from God. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. The second great catastrophe of Micah's century is the Assyrians. Uh, and perhaps if you do recall Rivendell a couple of years ago, you'll remember something about the Assyrians. Midway through Micah's lifetime, they went from being just one small nation amongst many in the ancient Near Eastern world to becoming the world's first genuine ever superpower. They were utterly unstoppable nobody could stand up to them nobody could defeat them they were expansionistic they were very powerful they were very aggressive and they were very very cruel uh, 3,000 years later they are probably remembered best for their cruelty to their enemies they basically conquered the entire world as they knew it at the time and it's so hard now kind of sitting here for me to convey to you the kind of feeling that you might have had if you were Micah or if you were living at Micah's time and you watched and looked and watched your world as the Assyrians kind of marched through just taking captive city after city and removing populations of people and burning cities to the ground and torturing people along the way down the entire coast. Micah would have sat up in the hills of Judah and watched, you can see the sea from the hills of Judah, and watched the Assyrian army march down the coastal road 
he would have seen them conquer the Philistine cities. And he would have seen them turn east and head up the mountain. Micah lived through the conquest of his own hometown of Moresheth as the Assyrian army marched into Judah and laid waste to, to the fortified city only a few kilometers away from where he grew up, Lachish, one of, <laughs> one of several very famous battles, and then besiege Jerusalem, decimate Judah. This was Micah's lifetime. He watched these things happen. I don't know if you've thought about what it would be like to be in the Ukraine at the moment. So, at the end of his life, Micah is sitting somewhere and kind of taking stock. He's seen it all. He's seen times of national prosperity, but riven with the worst of injustices. And he's seen times of God and his judgment and the most fearsome of enemies marching through his homeland. And he must have thought, what on earth? What's going on with my world? You know, what's happened to all of those good things God promised us? Where's this land of peace flowing with milk and honey? What's happened to the goodness and abundance of God and the peace and the justice and hope and, and freedom? What's going on with this world that we live in? Where are these things? Where is God in all of this? And so he writes, what misery is mine? What a way to end a life. What a kind of final word to have. But here's the hope of Micah. The hope of the book of Micah is that that's not actually the final word of the book. That's not how Micah ends. There's a turning point in verse 7. As for me, he writes, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. And so this is our big question for today. What's the source of that hope? What does Micah see as he looks around his world that perhaps we don't? And it is hopeful. Verse 8, don't gloat over me, my enemy, he writes, Assyria. Remember, Assyria is right there. Though I've fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Clearly, Micah knows something about our world, which isn't always apparent just from looking at the world. What does he know? It's not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. He's seen the injustice. He's seen the Assyrians with his own eyes, but he sees something else too. What is it? That will cause him to write verse 10. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, still Assyria, she who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. That seems like wishful thinking. But no, the day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. This reflection is actually full of hope. Victory over oppressors, rebuilding, resettlement, replanting. What does he see? What does Micah know? Here it is. Micah knows that Assyria can't be God's last word for this world. 
It can't be. Because if it were, then all of God's promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David and many others along the way would have failed. Micah knows what God is doing with the world because he believes the things that God has promised and he believes that God is capable of delivering on the promises. And that's actually the last word of the book, verse 20 there. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So Micah is understanding those promises and letting those promises shape the way that he interprets the world around him. It's the promises. They let him look at the same world that everybody else sees and see the same disastrous problems that everybody else sees but see something different. And the promises of God will do the same for us too if we'll let them. No matter how it seems when you turn on the news in the evening, do you still do news or do you just, yes? Never sure anymore. It's been so long since I've watched the news. No matter how it seems when you turn on the news in the evening, we have a promise that sin and injustice and corruption and guilt and war and violence and death and yes, disease as well, won't get the last word in our world. That's what we see, but it won't always be that way. And there's something even more remarkable, I think, in this passage. We could almost finish it, couldn't we? But, but I, re I really want to show you, because it's almost too amazing to believe that Micah could have said something like this. And it's the kind of thing that you can just very quickly skip over. We all have those experiences reading, especially in the prophets, because they're full of strange names and places, and we don't know them, and we kind of move through it very quickly and don't really notice what's going on. But it's almost unbelievable. Did you notice verse 12? Did you see that there? This is one of the most amazing things for me that Micah could have possibly said. In that day, people will come to you, come with you to God, uh, come to you, with you, to God, from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. People will come to you from from Assyria? Who are Assyria again? Are they not the army that's currently camped out in Micah's backyard? Tearing down homes and torturing people and burning cities? The invaders and the oppressors? And who are Egypt? Weren't they the people that enslaved God's people for 500 years and God did the whole Exodus thing and brought them out and set them free? Can you imagine being Micah and saying this? In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. But remarkably, astonishingly, the promise for a better world is for them too. The promises of God are for oppressor and oppressed 
the slave and free, the criminal and lawkeeper, for the rich, for the poor, for males, for females, for Jews, for Gentiles, for Egyptians, for Assyrians, also for Australians, also for South Africans. This is really why we're involved in mission together, isn't it? And the promises of God are for you too. Did you know that? They're for you. And so God promises to do something remarkable, just like he did in times of old, verse 15, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Just like God rescued his people out of Egypt once before and brought them out, he'll do it again. But there's something different this time. Last time, you'll recall, as he brought his people out of Egypt, it was Pharaoh's army that ended up on the bottom of the Red Sea. You remember the story, right? But it can't be the Egyptians on the bottom of the Red Sea this time. Because they'll be coming with God's people. There is something that ends up on the bottom of the sea. See if you can spot it as we work through the close of Michael's uh, passage. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, he proclaims, who pardons sin and, forgive, and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Who is a God like this? Who would actually... Look at Micah's world and pardon even the Assyrians and the Egyptians. Who's a God like that? Who's a God like, like God who would look at our world and say, you know what, I want to forgive you. What kind of God would forgive the sins of our world? What kind of God would forgive my sins? But you don't stay angry forever. You delight to show mercy. You'll again have compassion on us. You'll tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. There it is, not the Egyptians. You'll take our sin and hurl that to the bottom of the sea. You'll be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors long ago. God promised something better long ago so Micah wrestles with his world and maybe you are too wrestling with your world and in times like ours when everything is just so messed up and so tumultuous and so broken Micah's response is the only faithful response. As for me, I watch for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Our promise, the one that lets us see the world differently as well, is that through Jesus Christ, who cast our sins to the bottom of the sea, who brought peace between us and God, and who one day will return to judge this world and actually put it to right, through Jesus Christ, God will make something better. Now, I don't know you very well. Perhaps we've met each other four times, if we're lucky. Um, maybe you already see the world this way. 
If that's you, and you already see the world this way, then I think you have a gospel. I think you have good news. Because let me tell you, there are a lot of very anxious, troubled people who don't see the world like this. They don't see what you see. I think you have good news to share. And maybe you should consider going and telling somebody about it. Maybe you don't see the world like that, though. Maybe you don't like the world that you see when you turn on the news. If that's you, then I think I have good news to share with you. Because the promise is for you too. Turn away from your sin, and God will hurl it to the bottom of the sea. And watch in hope for the Lord, and he'll make you new as well. Shall we pray? Father, as we also wrestle with the world that we see around us, we can be troubled and anxious. Help us, Father. We don't yet see all things made new. We don't yet see everything subject to Jesus. But we know that you are good. And we know that what we do see isn't your final word about our world. Uh, We know that because you sent Jesus for us and for our sake, we can be raised with him to a remade world and made new. Father, keep us for it and encourage us while we wait. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.